Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Joanne Carr. Joanne lives in Dunnet on Dunnet Head, Cape Ness, Scotland, about two miles from where she grew up. She has a BA in textiles and surface decoration and an MA in textiles from Manchester Metropolitan University. She's been self-employed for over 20 years and has been exhibiting and working around the world as both participant and instigator of arts and heritage projects and collaborations. Joanne is keen to learn traditional skills, research local stories, and learn about conservation and the care of objects, which makes her perfect for us to have a chat with today. So welcome. Hi. And welcome to Newfoundland. <laughs> yeah. uh, you've come across the pond to, to spend some time That's with us it. here. Yeah, it took me my journey from home in Caithness to, to London to get the flight. It was longer than the journey from London to Newfoundland. Yeah, that's it happens sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was in Ireland a little while ago. Yeah, and, and there are now direct flights from St. John's to Dublin, which mm-hmm. is like three and a half, four hours yeah, or something. Yeah, and then I had so to and then I had to go to Donegal, which took me, oh, you know, right. forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was longer on the bus than I was on the plane. Um, so tell me a little bit about why you're here. Why are you in Newfoundland? Um, I'm in here because of Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it all started. Um, using Twitter quite a lot, to not just to spread information about what I do, but to, to find out what else is going on out there. And it's through Twitter that uh, the Newfoundland Crafts Council advertised a job for a residency in Grossmore National Park. And um, so I applied for that. And, but I applied with a project that's connecting where I'm from and here. And when I was uh, researching it, and I came up with the, the folklore of the three knots and buying the wind. And mariners used to try anything to get a fair wind uh, to get to where they wanted. So I think it's in desperation that they would just uh, have, and they had a lot of superstitions that they would just try anything. And there was these wise women that would sell them wind. Oh, really? Yeah. So in um, in Caithness, where I'm from, I find out that they, there's actually the wind witch or wind seller for our area from Duncansby Stacks, which is about 10 miles from where I live. She's called uh, Meg Watt, and she would sell a fair wind to mariners. In Orkney, in Stromness, in the islands, I can from my kitchen window, I'm looking over the Pentland Firth to the, to or- the Orkney island of Hoy. Mm. And in Stromness, the, the wind seller there was called Bessie Miller. And she, in 1814, she uh, met with a Scottish writer called Sir Walter Scott. And he was travelling round with the Lighthouse Board doing the Lighthouse Inspections. And he um, met Bessie Miller up Brinkies Bray. And he talked to her and she told him about her job as a wind seller. This is 1814 and she's already documented as being over 100 years old at that time. And her colour of her skin was like described as being like a corpse, and her features, her, her nose was supposed to have been touch her sk- her, her chin. <laughs> so it's quite a pretty pretty yeah, picture. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she would sell wind to mariners, and this tale of selling wind um, has kind of travelled and appeared in folklore over in Newfoundland, um, and I found. On the Intangible Heritage your Trust on your website there, yeah. the, the transcripts from your oral history recorded in the 1960s and 70s, I think. And I can't remember the name of the town, but there was a couple of stories there recorded. And they were men who were telling their stories that they were told by their fathers when, told to them by their fathers when they were boys. And part of that, those stories are the, the mariners selling wind to, selling a fair wind. To yeah. yeah. And there were all kinds of, um, uh, beliefs as well about th- 
prohibitions about uh, things you could or couldn't talk about on ships yeah. for fear of conjuring up a bad wind. Yeah. My, my late father-in-law, George Jones, he, he was from Brigus in Conception Bay, which isn't too far from here. And um, he worked, I think, for about 50 years of his life on the boats right. in one form or another. And he would always say that men would never talk about horses mm -hmm. when they were on a ship for fear that it would conjure up a wind. The, right. you know, the wind was something that you had to be yeah. aware yeah. of and, yeah. and pray for good for good wind and pray that you wouldn't have bad wind when you were, yeah. You were a sailor. Yeah, yeah there's, there's quite a lot. Quite, I quite like the, the stories of the, the different traditions that they had. As an, one I particularly like is that uh, when women were baking at home and their men were out at sea fishing, they were not allowed to blow the, the, the ash off their baking because that would cause a hurricane. Oh, really? Yeah. That's a new one so, to me, yeah. There's one baking uh, piece of folklore that I love from Bay Roberts area, which is also in Conception Bay. Um, puddings are a great thing here. Everyone yeah. has a boiled pudding of yeah. some kind with Sunday dinner. And there was a belief that when you put the, took the cloth off the pudding... If there were, you know, the bubbles would form, right, and yeah. if if you opened one up, and if there was a bubble in the shape of a coffin, it would mean that uh, someone was going to die. Which is great. Very, very specific like, bubble yeah, shape, I yeah. think. Yeah. So um, you heard about the uh, the opportunity to come yeah. and do the the program here, yeah. and you put in an application. That was my selling wind. Was my proposal. And now here you are. Yeah, I'm doing a wind exchange. <laughs> That's great. So you've been in St. John's, and you're heading out to uh, to Grossmore. And what will you be doing while you're there? Um, while I'm there, I'm actually going to be selling wind yeah. and doing wind exchanges. I've already started the project um, by working with children in my local museum back in Caithness at Caithness Horizons Museum and they have a club for, for call it Young Curators Club, Peter's mm -hmm. Pals and they're for children from 5 years to 12 year olds. So I've done a workshop already with them a couple of weeks ago and we made I told them the stories of the, the wind sellers and the connection here and also I read them from the, the, the books that was published in the Newfoundland last year by running running the goat press by Andy Jones. Yes, and his two sto two folklore stories brought together, and one of the, and there is mentioned the three knots. That's in the Jack the King of Ashes. Jack the King of Ashes. Yeah. So I got a copy of that and I read that to children back in Caithness. Yeah. So they made some three knots and uh, tagged them with wind and the, what to do with them or do and. I don't know if you know the story, what to do with the three knots. You know, if you get a, a wind seller would sell you a piece of fabric or a piece of thread, or it could be anything, but you would tie, put wind into three knots. And sometimes the, the women would go, to put, to put wind in the knots, they either whisper the wind into the knot or find a very windy place and tie the knots up there. Ah. Uh, and then she would give that cloth or, or thread to the mariner and tell them, when you're out, out at sea and you want to... There's no wind at all. You need to go distance to go for your fishing or travelling. Get home, untie the first knot, and a, you'll get a light breeze. If you need a bit more wind, untie the second knot, but don't untie the third, because you get a hurricane. <laughs> what was interesting was, in all the stories that I've been finding, the ones in around Scotland and you know in Finland and Norway and Iceland and around there, the contrast between those and the the couple that I found in Newfoundland, the ones in Newfoundland they don't untie the third knot. In Scotland, they do. Oh. <laughs> so yeah. the children have made wind knots and we tag them with instructions of what they're about and what to do with them. And we've sent them already by post to children in Woody Point. And okay. I'm going to be doing workshop, workshops in Woody Point with children there and we're sending back. And I'm also going to do a wind exchange with children from the, the Western Isles, an art centre there, in the Western Isles of Scotland, Isle of Lewis. And we're going to send in, send in more wind back to Newfoundland.
Because, yes, we always need more more wind. wind. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a way of making making connections through our culture and heritage. So how did you you start off getting involved with uh, museums and and children in museums? Museums. um, A lot of my artwork, um, I do a lot of residencies and do exhibitions. A lot of my artwork is inspired by the history of an area. So I'm often going and researching on my own and finding out about maybe an old ruined building or a landmark or a story. And a lot of this research, I end up in a museum to get more background information as well as just talking to people. And it was through that that my local museum, Caithness Horizons, they have a plant collection of Robert Dick. He was Robert Dick, baker and botanist of Thurzo. He lived from 1811 to 1866. And in the museum, we've got his pressed herbarium collection. That's his pressed plants collection. There's about 3,500 of these plants. They are in quite a bad state because for years um, they were passed around and they were maybe left in a garage or they got damp and they were mouldy. And they're so fragile, they can't be on public display. So the museum... Asked, they, it asked, they asked me to make something inspired by something in their collection and I chose Robert Dick um, and Robert Dick is, is, well, although his job was a baker his passion was the plants and, he, and I started to make work combining the job of his, of his bakery um, and adding imagery of his plants and finding out where he went to and this kind of evolved then into a bigger project where the museum um, applied for uh, an award from Muse- Museum Gallery Scotland and Creative Scotland. It's called Iconic Artists in Iconic Places. And we were successful in that uh, application uh, to get a grant that I was al- then allowed me to do, to do a lot more work on the Robert Dick collection. And it was over the years of working with the museum, the curator Joanne Howdell, that was looking at the problems of not just cons- conservation of the Robert Dick plant collection, but also public access to it. The collection is so fragile that they can't even after being conserved they can't be on public display for any for, for three months in any five years, even in low light conditions. It means if a plant sample on a sheet, has, there are about A3 size sheets of paper, if that plant sample has been on public display for three months, it has to go away again in a drawer for another five years before it can be seen. So we wanted to tell people about the plants and the story of Robert Dick. Uh, but also you, you can't actually even look at them. So I've been digitising the whole collection and they were eventually putting them on the computers so you can access them there. Mm-hmm. But we wanted actually something to people could handle to have a look at. I like objects, I'm the worst. When you go somewhere, I want to touch things. Yes. Uh, yeah. I like to touch things. <laughs> I think it's a human trait so, that yeah. museums sometimes you, keep us away from. Uh, yeah. So I started to work out a plan of... How could I make the Robert Dick collection accessible and of interest to to people? Not everybody's interested in dead plants. So I thought they were beautiful objects. It's just a, a piece of artwork. But it's working, it's got scientific value as well. Hmm. So um, I, I looked at these, a lot of my work had kind of been developed this way that become boxes that you open, there's an object inside them and there's information in there. And they're just this... I decided on to make a, a portable museum of curiosity. And the shape of the outside of the box 
is based on Robert Dick's moss collecting box, this metal tin that's in the museum. So we kind of scaled that up and worked out a way of opening opening the box. We have drawers in it and flaps and information in there telling the story of what happened to the plants after Robert Dick had picked them, right through to the conservation aspect. So it becomes a learning object as well as something that can be in an art gallery. So it's robust enough that it goes out to schools. It's already been travelling around schools, borrow it and uh, other places that they can and there's no you don't have to, there's no instructions of order you don't have to say start opening number flap number one use to and then read them in a certain order you can or open the flaps and open the drawers in any order you like the more it, uh, so each little flap has got a standalone piece of information about Robert Dick mm-hmm. so what became fascinating was not just the plants but it's the paper wrappers and the newspaper clippings and all the things from the eight, you know the 1850s if so is what he pressed his plants in and he has smaller samples inside envelopes and letters that were folded so it's all that kind of rich information that you get a background of what was happening at that time mm-hmm. and building in that picture so the box is about the story of of robert dick right and so this was the start of this uh, portable museums yeah, uh, yeah. project, portable museums of curiosity, which then you kind of expanded on yeah, and did other examples yeah. of. So, if if I maybe walk us a little bit through the fabrication of it. So, what is it made out of, and how did you make it? Okay, the the box. I wanted the there's a few things I definitely wanted it to be was it had to be accessible, kind of really strong, and I didn't want teachers particularly to be worried about giving it to a class of six year olds. Right. So it had to be hardy. Yeah, 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 to be durable. Um, but I wanted it to be nice to look at. So durable, and it had to be lightweight. So it had to be, be easy to be carried by one person and easy to be sent in the post by a courier. So lightweight. Um, but it had to be able to open up. So it's almost self-display as well. So it has to have lots of flaps and drawers that could be easily to open and close. So the main construction part of the box is actually... It starts life as an 8 before sheet of aluminium. I'm not a metal worker, but my husband is. So I, I, we, together we work out the design of the shop, the, the box, and work out what's practical. I'm usually wanting an extra flap or an extra drawer here. And he'll <laughs> he say, no, you, you can't. can't yeah, that, you yeah. can't. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> so we kind of sneak in as much. We're trying to cram in as much as possible in that. I mean, we even built in a board game as well. That's one of the things that the actual curators in some of the schools wanted. And we worked the, with the rangers as well to find out um, what information would you like is useful in the box. It's an educational tool as well. So there's a board game that, fl- that folds right down onto the table. Um, so the Robert Dick box, the outside of it, is actually made from a shiny piece of aluminium. It's not interesting. But the museum curator, when she got the idea of what I was, at, what I was trying to make, and she was quite excited by it, she said, I think I've got the very thing in the basement. We've got an old washing machine. So it's quite heavy stainless steel, but had a nice blue... Uh, paint worn off, aluminium paint rubbed off and textured and it handles on there and it was perfect so it's kind of a bit of give and take there the stainless steel is a bit heavier than aluminium but the texture on that paint was just perfect. And that's what forms the shell of it. The outside of it, yeah Yeah. so that opens out and then on the inside I've printed digital prints of the herbarium sheet some has labels onto canvas and they are printed and stuck onto the panels and then flaps that are printed onto canvas as well but it's all be able to wipe clean and the, some of the, the drawers all the objects are actually stuck in there because that's one of the things about objects that get loaned out for a handling collection 
not all the objects come back. Mm -hmm. So I wanted everything to be stuck, accessible, but yet stuck in there. There's only one object in the Robert Dick box that you can actually lift out, and it's a, a biography of Robert Dick published in 1879 by Samuel Smiles. And this book um, was actually sent to me by a guy in um, Faisal in Melbourne, Australia. All my research, I keep blogs, and all my research, as I'm going along, I add a uh, links to things, pictures of what I'm doing, not just when I've finished the project, but as I'm starting right through to see my, th my thought process. I kind of use them as an online notebook to keep my own brain in order, but everybody else can see it. Yeah. And it means that everybody, I can get information from other people looking at it. They might know something or somebody to go and talk to or somebody to say, have you looked at this? Have you tried that? And this, this book... Um, Faisal was actually reading my blog and he went to a charity shop in Melbourne and he found the book, uh, an actual 1879 original publication, and he sent it to me. Right. So I put that into the into the box. But also I added his story about where the, this book came from. So you open the book and the first page it tells you where the book, how I got the book and where it's come from. Yeah, so it's interesting. interesting. You were you were talking at a at a workshop uh, at, uh, in manuals here in Newfoundland mm -hmm. about the herbariums and how people would would share these things by post. Yeah, it's you quite. Know? It's a, that's the thing about small museums. We have one. Joanne Howell is the one and only curator for the whole collection. There's everything from Vikings to geology, you know, things about nuclear stuff, right through to the the herbarium, and she's not an expert in all of these areas. So the plant collection. Neither of us really knew what the collection was about. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to search through these plants. First of all, we're looking for the collection, the, the information, the sheets. To selecting from 3,500, had to select 20 to get that money for conservation. So we decided to pick the first 20 plants by looking at the labels and picking ones that are either signed by Robert Dick or had a local place name on them. And we were, as we were going through that in detail, we discovered that there's loads of plants in there with different plant collectors from around the, all around the UK and some plant samples herbarium sheets have got more than one label on them, some have got three or four and it might say X herbarium of and then there's another label and it's like somebody in Dundee and then there's somebody in Birmingham you know, so around, and we wondered why on earth have we got all these plants, pressed plant samples from other collectors around the UK, they're not all Robert Dicks and that's when I discovered online and through the Edinburgh Botanics and Manchester Metropolitan University, their herbarium department, that um, there was this thing called the Botanical Exchange Club. It's like s swapping stamps. Mm -hmm. There was an, an official way of pe men, uh, mostly men, swapping their pl press plants with other collectors because they wanted a full set of their plants growing in the UK. Um, like in Caithness, the plants that we would have growing there would be very different than the ones growing on the south coast. So they would be swapping, but it was an official way of doing it. So as these, they were kind of the, the plants were sent to a central point and then distributed at certain times of the year. So that's why we've got these collections of all these plants, different plant labels. So now we understand why they were just, these are just as important as the ones signed by Robert Dick. And it means that now when I search online, as other collections, her other universities and herbariums and museums are digitising their collections, they have them online. And I keep doing now and again, doing a search for Robert Dick and more of his plants are coming up in other museum collections. And there's one exciting find that we had um, 
while I was doing this research, just bef- just in time, just before the whole Robert Dick area in the Case and Museum was being redone. So it was quite timely that one of the plants' labels I was looking at, I can't see names on them, and they don't really mean much to me, these plant collectors. But then I was reading other books, and I go back and I'm thinking, I've seen that name before, and it was J. Hooker. And then I'm looking, I'm thinking, there's J. Joseph Hooker, and there's a John Dalton Hooker. These were the d- previous directors of Kew Gardens in London, and they were best friends with Darwin. Oh, yes, yeah. And we have about That's four or five of J. Hooker herbarium sheets signed in uh, the, the Keith and Sorising's collection. So I had to email these images to Manchester Museum, and I said, um, should I get excited by these labels? And email back, yes. <laughs> So that information became quite important. Before that, we just kind of shuffled through them and think, you know, it doesn't say Robert Dick. It doesn't say anything about Caithness. What's this about? Yeah. But that information then became part of the, in the within the new display in the museum. Yeah. So now, while we're talking about uh, kind of that detective work around mm-hmm. plants, um, can you tell us a little bit about your research with the Magellan Daisy? Magellan Daisy. Magellan Daisy. Magellan Daisy. Oh, that was, that was one of those things that because I was doing this big project about Robert Dick. I mean, my projects, they don't last weeks, they don't last months, they last years. Many projects I'm doing, about four or five, maybe more, all at the same time. I pick projects up and I don't let them go. I'm kind of maybe working on one, but thinking about three or four sure, at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Miguel and Daisy is one of those. Because I was doing a project about plants in particular... Look, I can't remember who it was, but somebody happened to mention to me in case this and said, well, do you know about the Miguel and Daisy and the Whalers? And I just looked at him and went, no. <laughs> what do you mean, Miguel and Daisy and Whalers? Well, there's no Miguel and Daisy in the Robert Dick collection that I've seen so far. And uh, they said, oh, no, it's not a plant. It's not a local plant. It's come from South America. So I then online and looking uh, in books to find out about this Miguel and Daisy and Whalers and find out where it was growing. And it's actually growing in what would have been the garden of a ruined croft house, which is actually between where I live now in Dunnet and two miles away in Broch, where I grew up. I would have been passing this patch of Miguel and Daisy in this ruined croft every day to go to school mm-hmm. when we go to town, and I didn't know about the story. And it's even in botanic books, um, Botanic Society of the British Isles, it says there, Miguel and Daisy is an alien-introduced species. It's not invasive, so it's not one that needs to be dug up and got rid of, but it's kind of got this interesting story. It says in the Botanic books, said to have been introduced to Caithness, Orkney and Shetland by whalers visiting South America. So I started to search about this story, and I cannot get to the bottom of it. We've had many theories as to why... This flower might have been brought back. My favourite one is that it's kind of the equivalent of a man coming home from work and I think, oh, I better buy the wife some flowers and pick some up from the petrol station. <laughs> right, yeah. This whaler's been away for three years. He's coming home with I some I might daisies, bring yeah. some flowers. <laughs> <laughs> but the flower is actually only blooms for about three weeks. And I was first told this story in September. I had to wait till the following June to actually go and see it for real when it bloomed. So it's... There's other stories that say, people say, oh, maybe they brought it back to prove that they've been south because they were travelling to South South America, around Cape Horn, around there, and bringing it back. And the climate is quite similar in in Patagonia as Caithness and Orkney and Shetland. And there's actually a map, a botanical map online, and it shows you the dots. It shows you where these plants are growing. Orkney and Shetland are obliterated with these dots. It grows everywhere. 
and um, I think the curator at um, the museum in, in Shetland in Lerwick, uh, Ian Tate, he said, oh, I've got that thing growing up through my cracks in my patio. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they, in, our, in Shetland, they seem to have different names for it. They call it Magellan Daisy. They also call it Patagonia Daisy. And in some cases, they've even called it Australian Daisy, but it definitely doesn't grow there. And so you've taken this research that, you, that you've done on the, on the daisy, and this is another one of your portable museums. Another of museums. my boxes, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and this box <clears throat> tells the story of the mystery of the Magellan Daisy in Whalers. But in the box, there are no answers. It's full of questions. So when the box goes out, I'm hoping one day that somebody might come back and say, I know when and who brought that back. So I've tried to research who lived in this old croft because it's been empty. And we've got a couple of names of Banks and Bruce and it's supposed to have been the, uh, an uncle of this fellow's wife that brought the flower back. But where he went on his voyages and when, we don't know. So we don't even have a date of when it was brought back. When I, start, when I know I'm starting to go around in circles, there's a botanist in uh, Shetland that I was in touch with, and he he said, oh, yeah, it, 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 it could have been just brought back by normal horticultural means. Well, that didn't really mean anything to me. So I emailed back, say, could you explain that? And he emailed straight back and said, well, it could have been a whaler. <laughs> <laughs> it just means that people are going out and collecting. collecting they have official, official yeah. plant collectors who are doing their job, and many of them doing it as a hobby, and some just thought, oh, it's an interesting plant. That might grow back at home. And is it propagated by seed? Is that it's, The seed is, it's like a dandelion seed head, you know, so it could be blown in the wind, ah, okay. which I'm quite surprised that it's not, because it blows, it's a, this kind of seed head, I'm quite surprised with it, how windy it is up in Caithness, and the peat bog that it could be growing in it's not actually spread, it's still growing within what would have been the confines of a garden it grows in other places in Caithness, in Dunnet and next to the ditches, it's likes to keep, keep its feet wet Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. so what does, the, what does the portable museum dedicated to this look like? This one, because I didn't actually have a real physical object or a ship or a name of a person even to base it on, I decided that the shape of the box should be um, a mariner's medicine chest. So when you open it up, it's got lots more little, tiny little boxes with things in them mm-hmm. that uh, kind of give you the feel of a mariner's medicine chest. And the front flap folds down, instead of having a board game, it's as if it's the captain's desk with his sextant on there and a kind of a map of the world. And then there's a picture of the croft as if that says where he grew up. So there's a, a kind of collection of things, mm-hmm. mystery things. Mm-hmm. And that tells the story of um, bringing together um, not just information about the plant and where it grows and the, the mystery, but also there's quite a new, this is where my, pro- my work goes off on a tangent and I find out these interesting stories, that actually there is a Magellan Daisy oppressed herbarium sheet brought back by Darwin in 1831 from his voyage on the Beagle to South America. The captain of that ship was uh, Fitz, Captain Fitzroy and I read about the boats that they used to go he was he was mapping the coast and the boats that they used to go into all these little nooks and crannies and to be able to go quickly in two directions forward and backwards they used whale boats because he had a, he had a whale ship and then off the whale ship you had smaller crew that would go launch six or seven of these whale boats that were kind of like a long canoe pointed mm-hmm. at both ends so it's that connection again between plants and whaling the, the kind of crew, the ship that they were using to go and do recording. 
So there's information about that in there too. And also about the whalers um, or any mariners going around Cape Horn, the the thing that if they've gone around Cape Horn once, they get a blue tattoo on one ear, and if they've been around twice, they get a blue tattoo on the other ear. If they've been around ten times or more, I think they can put their foot on the table while they're eating, but they also <laughs> get two tattoos, two red dots on their forehead. So it brings together more than just the story of the daisy. It's yeah. kind of the whole thing yeah. around it. That, those inter inter national voyages yeah. of the, yeah. the age yeah. Yeah. yeah so this is where i really enjoy a good mystery in trying to search out information yeah and then try and bring that together into a piece of artwork well it's been uh it's been fabulous to have you come in i know we could talk for for ages we didn't get to talk about agnes mcphee we didn't get to talk about all your the current projects you're working on so if people want to get more information about the work that you're doing you said you have a blog how do people find you yeah, online? Oh my, 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 you're getting through also my website because each project i have so many projects each pro- project has a blog but they're all linked from my website and it's joannebcar.com and car is spelled k-a-a-r k-a-a-r and if people want to follow you on twitter what's your twitter That's handle at joannebcar Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that's how we met. We that's met through, through, through Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. You know, it's it's like the modern equivalent of those botanists sending their herbarium sheets yeah, back yeah. and forth. Yeah. yeah. So thank you uh, very much for coming in. And uh, I hope you have great fun out on the West Coast. All right, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for coming. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Uh, Stephanie Machikian is our production assistant, and we would love to know what you think of the show. You can leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page, or you can tweet us at ich underscore nl. Thanks for listening. <laughs>